0: To Master of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how Jack of all trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Before we get started with today's podcast, we wanted to let you know how you can get the first chapter of Cliff Hudson's new book, Master of None, for free. All you need to do is text the word CLIFF, C-L-I-F-F, to 31996. That's CLIFF to 31996 to get your free chapter of CLIFF's new book, Master of None. Now, on to today's conversation.
1: Welcome to my podcast, Master of None. This is Clifford Hudson. In my book, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top, one of the things I talk about right up front is that change is a constant, part of everyone's life every day. Sometimes we plan for it effectively, and oftentimes we don't. In lighthearted moments of management planning in years past, I would mention this phrase to our management team, change is good, you go first. In this 2021 series of podcasts, my second season, I focus on conversations with the theme year of transition. With all this going on in the world, I believe everyone can see this as a year of transition and likely so on many fronts. But what about transitions that occur in life, particularly significant ones? And how well do we plan for these and how thoughtfully are we going about that? My guest today is Bob Rosenberg, who for more than three decades served as CEO of Duncan Brands a company that franchises those great Dunkin' Donut shops that causes you to pull in off the street and dive into a chocolate honey-dipped purgatory that you could easily mistake for heaven. Bob's also the author of Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. The book was published last October by HarperCollins and has quickly received recognition by folks who know their books and their donuts. Today though, I want to talk to Bob about change in life. More specifically, I want to talk with Bob about how a board of directors should look at CEO transition and how a CEO should look at the same. Bob has been through this process himself in more than one setting, both as a CEO and separately as a member of the board of directors in more than one company, including my own at Sonic, in which he was called on to help me through just such a process. So Bob, welcome and thank you for joining me today.
2: My pleasure, but It's always great to visit with you.
1: Yeah, it's, it's great. I, I appreciate you taking time time to visit as well. I think to give our folks context, um, it, it makes sense to for you to spend a, a moment, if you would, just talking about your time at Duncan. I've already mentioned that you, you were CEO for more than three decades. But in, in particular, one of the things that I'd be interested in hearing, not, of course, just the longevity. Uh, you began and you Became CEO at a young age, but I'm curious in this in this change in this transition process. Did you ever contemplate leaving Duncan uh, before a natural retirement, as you as you did after 30 years running the company? But I, I don't mean to dive just into that. It'd be interesting, uh, I think, for our listeners to hear your your path generally, and then but the context of thinking about uh, departure. Did that occur at an earlier time or only late in your career?
2: There were actually
1: uh, a couple
2: of times. Uh, one was involuntary, another was voluntary. The involuntary one is I, I I took over our family business called Universal Food Systems in 1963 when I was just 25 years old and a couple of weeks post uh, my MBA. And uh, always expected to join a family business, but 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 never thought I would be asked to helm it right away. And I accepted that responsibility and. Luckily for the first five years, uh, the company did phenomenally well. Basically, we niched down the business and focused it not on the eight small businesses that my dad had created, but on one of the businesses that was within that portfolio, Duncan, and it was very successful. We divested ourselves of the others, and before you knew it, within five years, our earnings had gone from 100,000 pre-tax to 800,000 in public company. Unfortunately, in the next five years, uh, I tended to make some terrible mistakes, and I, always, I often say it's hard to put an old head on a young body, and uh, through a, a sequence of uh, arrogance and a little bit of shooting from the hip, the next five years were difficult, and by that time, we were a publicly owned company. The board basically said, uh, after earnings have flattened out, and we found ourselves in the midst of some litigation, that they just had about enough of me, and they, and they fired me. Uh Luckily, I had uh, discovered the error of my ways, a lot of which had to do with arrogance and hubris, and uh, and we had begun to correct the problem. And I asked for another quarter and was able to stay on. So that was the first time. So that was the involuntary time. The more voluntary times were later on in the history of the business. We were in the midst of a hostile takeover and we sold the business to a, a large uh, conglomerate from the United Kingdom, and that was. Um, Basically, in 1989, i had already been running the company for about 27 years. And at that time, I had considered possibly taking one of the divisions that we had created, the Chili's franchise for New England, leaving the business and, and doing that. And ultimately, after a lot of deliberation, decided that the company was moving to a brand new environment with a brand new owner. I had owed a tremendous debt to our franchisees and my team. And I decided to stay on with this uh, uh, European English buyer, Allied Lions, and, and run the business under them. And so that was a transition time of huge significance to me personally, not so much for the business, but for me personally. And I did that for nine years until finally deciding that the business was in safe hands, smooth running in the, into the future. And then I decided to, to leave. Uh, and I actually had planned that departure. For a couple of years before the actual departure came.
1: Now, when the when they the first occasion when you were a young a young uh, executive in your 30s, it sounds like how long did that? Uh, I'm wondering if you had a period of time to begin developing philosophically about departure in that in that first circumstance. Because if it went on for two weeks, the answer is probably no. But if it, if it was lingering for months, you probably had some time to actually think about. What does what could this change mean and how, how do I manage this change in my life? I was 35 at the time. So I, I,
2: I knew the problems were coming, but quite truthfully, I had not the wisdom and the experience to begin to start the plan for transition as as later it uh, would have it, that I did have that ability. So I had no idea what I was likely to do. I'd have to basically go back into the job market and look for a job, but but other than that, no real planning. So this was at 35 today you know they call it emotional intelligence uh that 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 phrase wasn't around then and i would love to tell you that i came to the job at 25 having it unfortunately that wasn't the case and the fact of the matter is is, is that that was a continuing process that evolved over time and when it came to future transitions like the one that happened in 1989 uh and then later in 1998 i was much better prepared for those kinds of transitions
1: so, you're in 89 when you thought about uh, taking the Chili's division and departing the company as it was acquired by the European owner. Uh, was that also a process where you started refining a philosophical approach, or was it more just somewhat strategic? And you were going to kind of go one path or the other. Um, that's really less of a kind of re- retirement or departure sort of uh, process. There's some element of that. I guess by 89, you've been running the company for 20 years. So that's a significant point in time for departure. But the more philosophical or, or structural process I want to get into in a moment that you've shared with me before, uh, that was part of your thought process uh, in, in 89 or or not, not yet? It, it tended to be
2: much more. There was an opportunity and it was more weighing and balancing and ultimately the well-being of the enterprise weighed more heavily than a need for me to be more entrepreneurial and own a business of my own. What was in the back of my mind was the notion that 80 or 90% of entrepreneurs, and I considered myself entrepreneurial because I had really built the business, generally don't stay on after a change in control. They generally leave. And, and I thought that that would probably be the case for me. And that was the reason why I was anxious to, to take a division by the time that had occurred and, and have a business of my own. And, but ultimately, what weighed most heavily was my own sense of responsibility to the people that I had brought along, my team as well as the franchisees. And that was what ultimately decided the, the balance. But that that was the kind of evaluation that went on. I, you know, I fundamentally wasn't sure that I could live in a new role in a large European diversified food and beverage company, spirits company particularly. I had, either one of these things had risks associated with it. And ultimately it was basically my decision to support my team, my public, I could always try to buy a license or a franchise if I wanted to have a business of my own at a later date if the allied thing didn't work out.
1: Right, right, right. Well, I, I had to say in my own case, this may have not been your perspective, may have, but it sounded like it, it sounded like it wasn't from what you just said. In my own case, being acquired by a foreign concern and, uh, uh, and a, a one with some broad business and a broad set of executives might have been more enticing to me to stay on than a domestic concern with limited number of executives and um, kind of being more, maybe not just in my backyard, but even my front yard. But at any rate, I, I just in contrast, as you know, when Sonic was acquired, I, I took the approach, both my longevity and the circumstance of the acquire there was really not much reason for me to contemplate staying around. And I and I gave it not a moment's thought, really. So, in, interesting contrast just in terms of nature of Acquirer and how that affects your perspective, so. Interesting point you raised
2: because the fact of the matter is within a year or so,
1: uh, they had already owned for
2: years uh, Baskin-Robbins and before I knew it, they were giving me more responsibility. Right. Giving me a seat inside. And they were distant, and um, they came to have more and more confidence and trust in me, and I in them. And as it as it worked out, I, I went through a number of different bosses. I would love to say they were all great. They weren't. I had four and nine years, but, but two of them were terrific. And uh, during those good eras, it really was a pleasant relationship
1: and worked out well for everybody. I also think um, you were... Still, a little earlier, in, just slightly earlier in life and earlier in career, when that change of control took place uh, with Allied Domecq versus when uh, Sonic was sold, I was sixty-four, I think, when Sonic was sold, and I think you were probably in your fifties when yeah, uh, fifty-one or fifty-two. Fifty-one, yeah, okay. So that that would have made some difference to me as well. I don't, I don't. Uh, I'm not sure what my path would have been, but I, I was at a logical. You know, significant transition point. You know, in life, you know, much less from a career standpoint. So, I know that um, then, by the time you looked at your transition out of Duncan in the late '90s, you have talked about uh, at times to me about a structured process that you went through. And people go through change all the time, and uh, all along the spectrum in terms of the significance and the nature of the change. And the question, of course, is, you know, are you ready for it? Are you preparing for it? And you're doing so consciously. But I've been intrigued with your discussion about how you have planned for change, and would uh, enjoy it if you were, would share that with us. When this
2: time came, uh, when now I was approaching sixty, and I thought it was time to move along. I mean, often people will tell you that uh, you'll know it when the time is right, and I began to feel it in my bones. It was. It was time to move on by that time i had matured more so if you call it emotional intelligence understanding yourself and understanding others better i came to find that the planning process the strategic planning process that we used in the business was extraordinarily helpful to me personally in terms of charting my own personal life my own strategic direction and it all begins with uh, a very clear understanding of language. You know, we create ourselves in language, and sometimes we're not particularly rigorous. In that. And I was lucky enough to run into a linguist along the way that was helpful to me in that regard. So it started with the same. and We applied it in our planning process corporately, and I began to utilize it personally. It starts with what is my purpose, and then what is my mission, what is it that I want to be within the next three to five years. Uh, what objectives do I want to have? What are the three to four sort of benchmarks, the quantitative benchmarks I would measure myself by? And then what uh, strategic initiatives would I apply to take scarce resources? So whether we're the United States government, a company, a community, or an individual, we only have a certain amount of energy and resources, time and money to apply. My own belief in corporate planning was that no institution Irrespective of size, could pay attention to any more than a pull at any one time, more than four, maybe five levers at a time. So I had to try to decide which four or five things I would address myself to, to bridge those scarce resources in my own time against those things that I wanted to achieve in my life and serve my purpose. And then the tactics underneath basically supported each of those four or five levers. So it was that whole planning process. And I've utilized it again a couple of times afterwards as I moved through other transitions, and I found it to be extraordinarily useful and it have served me very well. And I offer that in in my book uh, as a as a suggestion to others who are facing um, transitional times in their lives. So, for example, in, in my case, you know, I, I I had a need to be generative, and uh, I had long thought that I would like to teach. And I thought also that my experience for the last 27 years of running a business might, might be helpful to, uh, to other executives. And as a result of that, I you know, basically, along with trying to take care of my health and my family, I decided that I would become a, a teacher in, a, in, a, in an entrepreneurial college. And I would also search out board seats where I could help other executives maybe benefit from some of the experiences that I had. And that was sort of my plan. And I began to put it into effect really three years before I actually retired. And, and I found that by virtue of that kind of pre-planning, I was able to ease that transition. Uh, after doing the same job for 35 years, um, I was able to make the transition rather seamlessly. my oldest son, James said, Dad, you gonna regret this. You've only done one thing your whole life. And I said, "I think I'll be okay. I think I'll be able to to make the transition smoothly. And in fact, I was thrilled that I did. The company went on to bigger and better things moving from strength to strength. And my own life gave me more free time, and it gave me an opportunity to express myself in different ways than I had before. And the plan was put into effect and it worked extremely well,
1: yeah, yeah. And your teaching, was it uh, while you were doing it at Babson, was that full-time or part-time?
2: I was an adjunct, and I, it was in the graduate school and it was uh, night classes, but, so that was part-time. So basically, the other times, I basically then began to start to look for board positions, one of which I had, which was Sonic. Another one I, I had developed, which was Domino's. And then I began to work for private equity companies uh, in businesses that were, I would call, small box uh, retailing. I fundamentally had to decide where I could best utilize my, my experience and my own propensities, where, where I had some knowledge, and I limited my choices to areas where I thought I could really add value and stayed away from others. Where I had opportunities to go on other boards, I, I decided not to. I didn't know a lot about consumer packaged goods. Um, what I did know is, is franchising and, and small box retail.
1: Right, so this process of defining of the purpose, objectives and strategic initiatives. When you uh, uh, transition to teaching at Babson and, and um, also the board service you were engaged in, you utilize that process, you use, the, you use those, you might say, as strategic filters at the time, just as you had in, in business. So then uh, I don't know how long that that phase went, but at some point you quit teaching. I'm, I'm curious, uh, how you utilize that as you uh, continued through these uh, phases and stages, how you utilize that as your life continued to change, and particularly as you, as you uh, quit teaching, uh, still doing some board service and some consulting. Now, at this point, uh, you, as you transition even away from board service, have you continued to use this uh, framework for thinking about your activities?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So as I started to reach mandatory retirement age, avoid surface it was time to think of an, another act so now we're talking about my third choice my third my third transition. i utilized the very same process again and here it, it i basically decided that i still have the need to, to be of purpose to others and i still had a, a desire to be generative in nature um, that's what gave me the greatest satisfaction so i elected to write a book And that was the source of the time. I now have free time and even more experiences upon which to draw from. And so that was one of the key elements of the next one of the strategic levers that I pulled in the next era. And as you age, you find that you also have um, more responsibilities as your family grows and you have grandchildren. So I began to start to plan a part of that. One of the strategic initiatives was for my significant other, Mary and I, to travel um, separately. Um, with each of our grandchildren by themselves as they reach teenage years. And so that required time and planning and my own need to have to take care of my body, keep myself fit, remember, was also a large part of my activities. So these were all part of the strategic levers for that stage of my life that I basically um, uh, lit upon and decided on. And now I'm about ready to embark on a fourth phase, another transition, now that these have been, been basically completed. And I'm in the process of thinking those same things through now once again. And I again find the same methodology, the same strategic planning tools, the same language extraordinarily useful to help me here as well.
0: Do you feel like a jack of all trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a, quote, expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack of all trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Now, back to the interview.
1: And when you've gone through these stages and phases and and, uh, aiming toward that now again, have you always committed those to writing? Yes. That's interesting. Maybe today uh, we would say, "Did you prepare a PowerPoint presentation?" You know, but uh, that might be a little unnecessary (laughs) with the limited audience. But since you have put those in writing, is it something you have gone back to periodically as a check to see what you thought then and what you think two or three years later?
2: They basically are pretty grooved in my mind. I really don't have to go physically back to look. Yeah. what levers I was going to pull. Uh again, I I I you know as as I age, I don't have quite as much energy as I did, but I still have some gas in the tank. And and uh I I go back and check to see if we're heading right And you get a sense. You know, I basically in my own life have, have felt that, that the true measure of my life is is how close I've come to what I call the three things that I most want, which is sort of peace. You know satisfaction and fulfillment. And I can sense those in my body. I can sense if things are humming, my relationships are strong with my children and with my other people close in my life and whether or not I'm really at peace um, and whether I'm fulfilled. And uh, the, the, that's how that, I you know, I'm constantly sort of, whether I realize it or not, I, I'm taking my own temperature constantly about how things are going. And, and I don't want to be smug because that's, that's the last thing in life you find because life is lumpy and you get things you never ex- expect. But I do have that sense of peace and fulfillment and satisfaction. Uh, I've often said that that happy is a mood. Moods come and go. They're just nothing more than an interpretation of the future. So I have- I find the things that really drive me tend to deal that are out of directive they tend to be, as I say, more in online language, more generative. It tends to be much more in terms of my interaction with others, helping them, being of value to other people. That's how I would measure my life. And and, and that's my always been my purpose, at least when I became old enough to become aware of these things and began and to evaluate, you know, why am I here? How do I make a difference in the world? And that's that's those are the things I came to. I've been it basically is how can I add value to others? It starts with my my immediate family, which are incredibly important to me. And I spend a lot of time with my family, with my children, my grandchildren, my significant other. That's that's sort of comes first on the list of the that I pull. I have to pay attention to those relationships and to my own health.
1: So I have a maybe a, a funny question. Given that you've, I think these are these are uh, great life guidelines that you're discussing in terms of. Uh finding peace. Did you find that easier to do when you were not a CEO? Yes. <laughs> That's a great
2: As a CEO, basically every day things come at you over the transom. And I would say, I haven't thought about this in precise language, but I would guess that 80% of them are human relations issues. Those are hard I mean, dealing with the sensitivity in people's lives. It's something not to be taken lightly. It's a huge privilege to be given the opportunity you know, to lead and with it comes great responsibility and a lot of it for people's lives. Sometimes you have to make some very hard decisions. So the answer to that question is that with with that daily um, grind taken away, it, 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 it leaves more energy and more peace.
1: Yes, uh, I found the same thing in my life, more peace uh, post-CEO uh, uh, era, though mine's, I'm only two years into it. But you're right about the personnel piece. I mean, the fact is the bigger the personnel issue was, the the less, more internal struggle I had in dealing with it. Uh, oftentimes, And particularly if it was someone I was close to and worked with for a number of years, and it was a real struggle uh, at times. Kind of working through those things. In, in twenty of my years as CEO, um, you were then I would say the first twenty. I was only CEO twenty three, but you were on the Sonic board of directors for those twenty years. And so I'm curious. As I kind of developed a process for thinking about not departure. I mean, a large part of what you you have shared with us today is really about when you are transitioning, how to look at that kind of plan. But one of the things you were required to ask of of me as a CEO of Sonic is, and and we put it in two contexts. I think one is, what, what what should the board be thinking in the event of a sudden departure you know, that could mean walking out the door but more more really more likely thinking of it uh, as a, something catastrophic you know an air, airplane accident or a car accident or you know hit while crossing the street or whatever and so I do recall that once a year uh, in the fall when I would do that review with you and our board, I always answered that question if something were to happen to me tomorrow on an interim basis, here's who you should turn to to deal with the board deal with the public deal with the employees and and put them at least on an interim basis in charge that that answered that question about not who's my successor going to be but what's what should the board do in that in that catastrophic uh, circumstance but the other and more long-term and difficult question was you know it's, it's the mirror image of a uh, uh, you described what you would your process you go through as a CEO and thinking about post-CEO uh, term. This question is: how does a board look at the post-current CEO term? And I recall the process I would go through with you and other board members was one in which I would lay out the two or three or even four members of my management team, almost all direct reports, actually always direct reports, who had the potential of succeeding me. And I would lay out six and seven characteristics that I thought were essential with the CEO, and which of these individuals had strengths in those areas and which, which had gaps in these areas. It struck me that rather than trying to tell a board, here's who my successor is. Instead, it raised the question, here's our key talent, and here's the path they're on, and here are the things we're doing to develop them. And and it's not a question of a moment in time, but rather are they moving in that direction to fill part of the board's obligation of ensuring that the company does have leadership over time. Always, for me, and always an interesting process because it didn't answer the question, how should I be leading my life transition process? But rather, what process should I take the company and my board through in thinking about this? And you know, in some ways, it is—I think—a mirror image. Although when the transition occurs, the board is about staying—you know—it's about status quo of sorts. Whereas uh, when the transition occurs to the CEO, it's a—it's complete break and a new life. I don't know that I ever asked you how did that process meet the needs of a board. But I didn't ever get a lot of pushback saying, "Hey, this doesn't work." So I assume it met the it met the needs of the board and uh, kind of helped design that path of how you should be looking and thinking at our talent. Any reaction to that?
2: I think it, it fit well. This is my take. I would look at that decision about who should lead the business in very much the same way I would look at any higher decision. In the case of a business, businesses go through different phases. In my book, I have six different eras. Some of them as short as three, some of them as long as eight or nine years because the technology is changing, the consumer is changing, uh, the competition is changing. So the first thing, um, my suggestion would be when I was looking to fill a job, whether it be a successor to a CEO or whether it would be a hire within my own business, would be to define the assignment. What is the assignment? Where is the uh, where is the company? What are its needs? And the more rigorous you are about defining the assignment, the more likely you are to be able to fill it well. So that your approach of listing strengths and weaknesses of your direct reports, I think, would be a very effective way to help a board make an evaluation against the era in which they find what the needs of the business are at that moment in time. And the business has changed, and therefore it sometimes often require. A different set of skills and a a different individual to lead it. The second thing I would look for, most, almost as importantly, is the culture. I know you are a huge believer in the importance of culture, and and all businesses have cultures. So, and, and 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 my own belief is that it is dramatically more important to hire someone from within to replace someone within the business who understands the culture the values, the way things get done, what what in our case Sonic represents and has and are well grounded. Now in, in all cases you might not be able to find that theoretically in a the board in, in the case of Sonic, we did. We always had qualified candidates. Uh, but in some companies you might not uh, and in a, and it's an impending retirement, you might have to go out and hire someone and come in two or three years before uh the CEO retires in order for them to get acclimated within the culture. And and as a way of supporting that, I know, again, in my own research, I found between 2014 and 2016, out of the 250 S&P companies that are listed, uh, something on the order of uh, 70 of them or 72 of them, uh, changed CEOs. And my research indicated that out of that number, 62 out of the 72 uh, were lifers and and the, the, another eight or so basically were hired in in anticipation years before before the CEO retired in anticipation of the retirement or moving on. So it's almost like 90 percent of those companies felt that going inside was by far the best way. Define a successor
1: candidate. Yes, well, it's a fascinating bit of research you described there. You know, I think the uh, in my case in the in the circumstance of uh, Sonic wasn't just in the CEO; it's changing ownership of the company. So when that when those two coincide, the potential for a, a shift in in all kinds of things, shift in strategy, shift in culture, shift in all kinds of things, it, is very real so that's a that's an interesting filter to look at it, it for for me to reflect on it um because it wasn't just a question of my departing it was a question of the change in ownership as well which was quite a quite an abrupt shift for you know a company that had been public for almost thirty years and had employees there that that long and longer so interesting I'll be interested at some point to hear about your next phase of planning and what your your purpose, objective, and strategic initiatives look like, um, and your business plan looks like, and maybe this time you will put it in PowerPoint form, and and you can uh, you can share it uh, share it even on Zoom. So, but I do think, uh, um, in all seriousness, particularly in this post CEO period, this focus on peace, satisfaction, and fulfillment that's a great uh, that's a great you might say a great business plan for anybody. I uh, like that. Good advice. Well, Bob, I appreciate the time uh, today. Uh, very uh, interesting lessons, just as you have in in your in your book. I, I should have asked. Um, uh, I know the answer to this. People get your book on Amazon or any any number of places online. Uh, that sell books. You can get your uh, your book? Yes, I'm sure.
2: There are booksellers everywhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the pleasure of uh, reading Bob's book early on. Uh, And a a delightful book, as I mentioned, Around the Corner to Around the World, a Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. So Bob, thanks so much. Great to be with you. Uh, Look forward to all joking aside, hearing what that next phase looks like and, and getting the benefit of continued, in my case, continued benefit of your thinking. So thanks for that for so many years and thanks for the time today.
2: As always, pleasure to be with you.
0: Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go, would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity.